It is Wednesday, March 23rd, and baseball is back. Welcome back to another episode of the Long Relief Podcast with Austin Dakota and Barrett Hodgson. Barrett, it's been a couple of months since we recorded, partially because, well, we had no baseball, but after 99 days, the lockout ended, and about a week ago, spring training ramped up, so finally we have baseball on the horizon and lots to talk about today. Yeah, it's just glad to be back because we went a long time in that lockout. We've seen a lot of great signings, and we've seen some interesting new rules, and I'm just excited to talk about it with you, Austin. Yeah, and after Rob Manfred threatened to cancel games and did cancel games on national TV, they pushed back opening day to April 7th, and we will have a full 162 games. Now, as part of the new CBA, Barrett, they agreed to a bunch of stuff, uh, starting off with the CBT threshold, uh, 230 in, 230 million in 2023, and peaks at two. 44 million in the final year. Uh, a couple other money related items. The minimum salary will be 700,000 and go all the way up to 780,000 in the final year of the new collective bargaining agreement. And the pre arbitration bonus pool is $50 million. So just some money things to get out of the way that the sides are kind of hung up on for a while. But the first topic of discussion here on the Long Relief podcast today the postseason format, Barrett, adding one team in each side. Uh, to make it 12 teams total, that means 12 of the 30 going to make the postseason. I'm in favor of this rule, but what are your thoughts? I'm also in favor of it because I think we see a lot of those good teams kind of miss out. Like last season, we saw a Blue Jays team who fought right till the end, and it was literally the last day of the season, and they found out their fate and that they didn't make the playoffs. So I think it'll be good to have an extra team on both sides, and I think it makes it more competitive. In baseball, anything can happen, so – you could see a team that gets in there as the sixth seed in the AL or NL make a run to the World Series. Yeah, I think it is a good thing to have that extra team because you look at other sports like football where um, you have, what, now 14 of the 32 making it? Um, yeah. NBA, 16 of 30. So NBA, more than half the teams. But baseball was sitting at 10 of the 30. So that's really only a third of your league gets in. You add the extra team. I think that also could incentivize some owners to spend more money, which is why I think John Middleton of the Phillies went over the tax, which is why I think the Rangers signed a couple of big deals too and have continued to try to add and retool. Um, teams are feel like the playoffs are more attainable for them now. Yeah, and I think another thing that this adds is we'll see a lot more buyers at the deadline opposed to sellers. I think a lot more teams that are kind of on that fringe of being in the playoffs are going to go for it knowing that they have another extra playoff spot. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there are teams last year, too, in each division. You mentioned the Blue Jays being a fringe team, and they did try to buy at the deadline. But teams like the Mariners and the Phillies or or the Reds last year who bought but were cautious might be more willing to take the extra leap rather than make those short-term deals. You might see teams like that be more involved in star players, like when Trey Turner's moved or a couple years ago when Machado was moved. It's not always going to be the Dodgers anymore. I feel like some of these fringe teams might – be more willing and able to go and look at these star players. Yeah, and that could change so many things because a guy like Machado, who is a free agent after the season, what if he loves his half a season in a place like the Reds or something, and he loves it and he resigns there? I think just this addition of this the extra team in each side is huge because you could see these guys get traded to not as huge of markets like the Dodgers or the Yankees, but they could still love their opportunity there and even resign there. And like these teams could be getting a star for a long time. 
Yeah, I think it definitely helps a little bit with the competitive balance, which should be interesting to see uh, how that plays out. And one of the next rules, Barrett, that we have, there'll be no game 163. So it didn't ever happen too often. There was a chance it would have happened last year. Uh, So in case of ties, there will be no tiebreaker game 163, at least in the year 2022. Uh, We don't know if it's going to last beyond this year, but uh, they'll have a formula that breaks the ties. I think this is a no-brainer. I mean, it's pretty easy to determine a tiebreaker between two teams who have the same record. They do it in every other sport. Yeah, I I never really understood the game 163. I mean, you got these guys playing 162 games. It's not like they have uh, a 80-game season like the NBA or – a short like it's not a short season it's longer than every any other sport and it's just unnecessary to play a 163 possibly burn a starter or something so we can't go game one of a series it just never made sense to me so that is one of the smaller rule changes that i don't think they spent three months deciding i think that one was a pretty <laughs> easy thing so uh, one of the rules also that they changed um which may have taken a little bit more discussion but i think both sides or on the same page, the universal DH will be used in both leagues starting in 2022, a big fundamental change for the game of baseball uh, and one that I'm all for. Yeah. And I think everyone is all for, I mean, seeing those pitchers up to bat last season was just horrible. Half the guys just stand there and they don't swing the bat at all. And now you see guys become way more valuable. You see a guy like Jorge Soler sign with the Marlins. He's probably just going to DH there. His market expands. Kyle Schwarber with the Phillies, he just signed there. He got a nice deal. He's probably going to do a lot of DHing. I think it helps those NL teams a lot, and it helps these guys who are not great defenders get more money in free agency. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, these guys, there's a lot of more players now who are going to have prolonged careers and bigger contracts because of this. You look at Edwin Encarnacion towards the end of his career. He struggled to latch on with the team primarily because there was no DH in the NL and a lot of the AL teams were already set. But now like a guy like Schwarbert, would he have gotten a four-year deal from an NL team if the DH wasn't in place? I doubt it. Now he does. That's huge. Um, Don't want to see guys go up there and bunt anymore as pitchers. So I think it's one of those changes that 15 years from now we'll look back on and be like, man, I can't believe pitchers used to hit. Yeah, and I agree with that 100%. And I think it just really helps a lot of the postseason ball clubs who have older players who you can just instead of having them take a rest day you can have them just hit like the Dodge I think this benefits the Dodgers so much with a guy like Justin Turner who can play 80 games in the field and then DH the rest of them you still get all those at bats throughout the season I just think it really helps a lot of teams and it helps the market of the players yeah guys I think are going to get longer deals too out of it because a lot of teams will plan for hey Now, at the end of this deal, you know, we have two years where we can still get his bat and not have to worry about him being a liability in the field. You know, similar to a Turner, kind of like a Schwarber, um, guys like that might get that extra gear tacked on with the plan for them to get off their feet more. Um, So we'll see how that plays out in the future, too. But the universal DH is coming, which should mean more home runs in both leagues, more runs scored in games. It should be interesting. Uh, Another rule that was changed, the seven-inning doubleheaders are gone. I'm glad about that. And ghost runners and extra innings are also gone. So let's start with the doubleheaders, Barrett. Are you happy they're going back to nine-inning doubleheaders each? Yeah, I absolutely hated the seven-inning doubleheaders. Because if you got a starter like Jacob Tegram, who throws 100 pitches and goes six scoreless, you got one inning to try and 
get runs off of a guy. I had a problem with how it was set up purely because of the starter can go so deep into the game and you don't have that opportunity to get your lineup to go fully around the order, possibly a third time or face some relievers who a lot of teams had bad bullpens last season. A lot of teams will have bad bullpens this season. And some teams did get bailed out. The Red Sox maybe being one of those teams by not having to throw bullpen guys at the end of games. Well, my, yeah, my biggest issue was they would like reschedule a game. So say a game in, you know, middle of April gets canceled and it's the last game of that three game series. They'll then make it a double header uh, against the same team sometime maybe in July. Right now you're in the middle of July and you now have two games on the same day. So teams were starting bullpen guys in these double headers um, or just calling guys up, which is how they reschedule, you know, cancellations obviously, but you're now having this game pushed back and now you're looking at it on the calendar saying, okay, on this day, we have to play 14 total innings. So it would just turn into a bullpen game because teams were like not taking it seriously as much. Um, a lot of times in the NL, you know, they'd have a guy come out and start it um, because, you know, it got pushed back and it's in the middle of the month. And they're like, well, rather than waste an option and call a guy up for it or whatever, we're just going to go and use it as a bullpen game, which I hated. Yeah. And, to my point and to your point, it's a lot of both sides we saw. Like, to your point, I agree 100%. You saw Andrew Kittredge starting games for the Rays and seven-inning games and stuff like that. And nobody wants to see that. No, You want to have your set starter. That's I know we'll still see it occasionally. We'll see bullpen games here and there if a guy gets scratched from a start or whatever. But I think we'll be seeing that a lot less. And I think it's just having a seven-inning game just doesn't give a team a full opportunity to see multiple arms throughout a game so I think in in both senses it just makes sense to be nine in games no matter what yeah it's good to get back to how it should be in in my opinion at least and the other part of the rule which I brought up earlier or another addition to game structure the ghost runners and extra innings so once you got to the 10th inning they were putting a guy on second base uh, to try to speed things up those are gone for now those could come back um I'm really on the fence about this, Barrett, because there were times where I liked the ghost runner, uh, times I didn't. I just felt it didn't need to happen in the 10th inning. Maybe it's something they install, you know, say the 12th inning, we start with ghost runners, but 10th and 11th, you get a legitimate chance. What are your thoughts on the ghost runners and the fact that they're not happening right now? Yeah, I mean, originally I hated the idea, but once I saw it in effect, I, I liked it a little bit more. It makes sense in both ways because – to the point, you don't burn out all your bullpen arms if you have a bunch of games that week or something. So that makes sense. But it's also, you can get a fluke win. You just bump the guy over to third, then you need one hit and two batters. That's the part that bothers me about it uh, because it's just so easy to get that run. I think I'm happy to see it with no ghost runners right now. And, like, how often are you going to have an 18-inning game where a guy, like, they – throw their whole bullpen not that often so I think it just makes more sense to essentially stick with the traditional rules and roll with nobody on base but that's just me yeah no I agree with that I mean that's what the argument from a lot of people are that, that like the rule they say oh um you know I don't want to watch an 18 hour six and a half 18 inning six and a half hour baseball game but realistically that might happen what once a year if that doesn't happen that often. So it's not really a big solve to that issue. Um, but my issue was I watched the game last year and I forget what team it was, but they hit like a fly ball to right center guy tags from second to third. And then 
a fly ball, a sack fly, and they win the game. So you you made two outs and you win the game, which you didn't do anything to get that guy in scoring position, which is my problem with it. So, like I said, I'm not opposed to having it come back. I think it should be later. But, I mean, just by seeing that happen where a team won a game and, like you said, a fluke win where they didn't do anything to earn that run can definitely be troublesome. Yeah, and another thing that confused me about it is why second base? Why not start the guy in first base and you avoid that issue that you just described? Like yeah, in that mindset of things, it just it confuses me of why they decided second base opposed to first. I mean, I get it. They put the run in scoring position, but what warrants the guy deserving to be in scoring position? Right. I mean, then you look at if the guy's on first base, there's still a chance. Like if speed comes more into play, right? Stolen bases, a chance the guy could swipe second. Then, okay, he earned the right to be in scoring position. Now, if you drive him in, you drive him in. But it's just the fact that, like, he gets to start two bags away and if you have you know uh someone with speed like a roman quinn or uh even a kike hernandez who can run the bases really well you can get them in without having to truly earn it so it just when they decided it i mean also one thing too barrett is there are plenty of times where i saw the team in the top half of the inning score and the team in the bottom half of the inning also score because it's easy to get a run across so these poor relievers all these and these guys are coming across yeah it doesn't hurt their average but they're letting these dudes score and they don't really have a choice. So we do end up seeing still games going to the 12th and 13th because it's hard to prevent that guy from scoring. Yeah. And the other, like to your point, you see these relievers giving up so many runs, it just inflates their numbers. That was the other thing I hated about it. You saw guys' numbers just rise because regardless of what happens, a guy starting on second base, that messes up your sign sequence, that messes up all sorts of things within the game. So let's say, that first run comes in, but the reason that first run comes in is because the guy hits a double because he's messing with your sign sequences and you don't, you're not on the same page as the catcher or something. I mean, it's just, I feel like you saw a lot of inflated numbers in relievers because of that rule as well. Yeah. I mean, you get to that point in the game too, and you know, managers have a tougher time, I think deciding who to bring in, are you going to bring in your closer? If you're pitching in the uh, top half of the inning, kind of knowing that, that guy probably is going to get across. Would you rather save him uh, for another day, you know, with the, with the idea of, okay, let him just pitch a clean ninth the next day. I mean, it, it was different. It was an interesting rule, but for now it's gone. So we'll see if that ever resurfaces at any point. Um, a couple more changes, the larger base size, uh, the, I think it's about three inches all around. It's increasing, which is, it, I saw a side by side. It's huge. Um, I think the idea is to increase stolen bases maybe. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I was thinking, too. I think you're going to see a lot more stolen bases uh, because the amount of times you see a play so close with a guy's hand just trying to get in there is kind of insane. So I think that extra three inches will make a big difference and we'll see stolen base numbers way up. Yeah, for sure. And I think for a guy, you know, who steals 20 bags, like a Jazz Chisholm or, you know, even a guy like Bryce Harper who scored or who stole like 10, 15 bags, those numbers could jump too, which is going to be huge for that category. So a guy like Jazz could go up to 30 stolen bases, you know, take an extra 10 chances. I think uh, I think off the bat, you might see teams be more aggressive on the base pass just to test it out and see how it goes. Yeah, I agree with that as well. I think the other category where you could see increased numbers is double plays. Yeah. I think we could see, because it's a shorter like amount of steps those middle infielders may have to take uh, to touch the bag, depending on where the ball's hit and stuff. but. Just the bigger bag, I think we could see more double plays in, in the game. 
Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how much of a factor I think we as fans all believe the bases will help stolen bases, but we'll see if that actually does happen. And Barry, you mentioned double plays, definitely a possibility as well. Um, the next thing from, or the next item, I guess, on the list from the uh, agreement, uh, there'll be a pitch clock. Um, cause this will be coming in 2023 along with the bases. Uh, the pitch clock, a 14-second pitch clock, possibly 19 with runners on base. Now, this doesn't seem like they've agreed on it 100%. But if you're somebody who, you know, I remember Clay Buckholtz back in a few years ago would take about an hour and a half in between pitches. Um, definitely it speeds up the game. I think it's a good thing to have. I don't know that it's going to be enforced because, I mean, I think we've seen it. There was a pitch clock recently, I feel like, tested out, and I don't think it really worked. So I don't know how well they're going to enforce this. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like a, uh, a eight-second violation at the free throw line in basketball. Uh, it's kind of just hurry it up kind of thing i don't think it'll be enforced a crazy amount they'll definitely give warnings and stuff i think throughout the game if it becomes an issue uh i think it's just kind of to speed up the game a little bit more and i don't see it being an extreme thing that's enforced and all sorts of punishments from it but i don't know it could get interesting if they do do that yeah and the last thing on the list too um the ban on defensive shifts coming in 2023 according to reports so a lot of this stuff i think was loosely agreed upon too barrett so we could see some changes um uh down the stretch that are tweaks to these rules but the ban on defensive shifts where teams would be required to have two infielders on each side of second base coming in 2023 i am all for this rule number one because you teach kids all the way through high school hit the ball back where it came from, right? Hit it back up the middle, smack it, hit the, hit the batter's eye. And when you do that, and then you hit the ball perfectly, there's a guy standing behind second base to take away a hit. That bugs me. Number two, people try to say, well, take it the other way. I want to see them try to take a 100-mile-an-hour fastball in the hands the other way. Like you have, you're, <laughs> you're taught to pull an inside pitch. But, yeah, let me inside out a Jacob DeGrom fastball on my hands. So those are the two reasons I am happy they're banning the shift, but I want to get your thoughts on that. I hated the shift. So this is probably my favorite rule that came out of all of it. I couldn't stand the amount of times I saw a guy stand behind second base or a guy 15 feet into the outfield. I mean, David Ortiz, one of my favorite players ever, dealt with the shift his whole career. So I hated the shift. Ortiz would have hit like 400 without the shift. Yeah. So that, I mean, you'll see guys' numbers go up, hopefully. Hopefully it makes sense. But the thing about this that I'm a little bit confused by is what do you qualify as – I know you said on each side of second base, but can't you, don't you think you'll still have teams shading pretty heavy, heavy towards the middle on certain guys when they have numbers on them? Yeah, because theoretically you could be what, like three steps to the left of second base and still be to that side of the base. But yeah, I think that, like, that's why I think like this rule and a lot of them that were kind of just agreed upon, like they don't have the language in place for it. Like they just kind of have an outline of a few things like the draft with the international prospects. A lot of this stuff, they have to go back still and kind of to retool a bit and update because I think teams are definitely once it gets into play and how it's kind of worded will will matter a lot because people are going to be smart about it if you say two on the side of second base are we going to start seeing guys like you know the second baseman still in shallow left and the guy playing way off of first so it'll be interesting to see yeah. how they word it though yeah that's that's the thing because even if you say no shift teams are going to find a way to try and shift in some yeah. way they might not call it the shift. They might call it shading. And what about, like, the outfield? Like, is that – do you qualify guys moving 
20 feet to their right on a guy who typically hits it to left field. Is that, does that, is that a shift or is that shading? Yeah. What do you, it's, it's going to be interesting to see the terminology that they use when this is finally all said and done. I mean, theoretically, they could move their second, their center fielder to right behind second base because he's an outfielder, toss one of their left side of the infielder, uh, infielders into left field and move their left fielder to center. Yeah. There's, there's a lot there's, of ways. There's still so, a lot of ways. Yeah. That's going to be an interesting one to see how that kind of develops. But, that's pretty much some of the highlights and key points from the new CBA. So excited that baseball's back, Barrett. But now it's time to catch everyone up on the recent signings that have been happening. There's still a few guys out there, but I think we should start with the big one for the hometown Red Sox, considering we're both from Massachusetts, you being a Sox fan, me being a Phillies fan. But let's just start with the Trevor Story deal. Six years, 140, I think he got from Boston. Yep. Opt out after four years. Uh, if they agree not to opt out, it extends. He could have a an, a club option or something for the seventh year. But either way, Trevor Story for at least four years. I am very excited as a Red Sox fan. He uh, the only part of this that concerns me a little bit is the the positioning. I think he'll be fine at second base, but I don't think when you have Trevor Story on your roster, he should probably be a shortstop. Alexander Bogarts has struggled a little bit at shortstop, but it's already been agreed upon. Story's going to play second. Uh, it's a huge bat to add to the order. I mean, you're replacing Christian Arroyo as your everyday second baseman to Trevor Story. I mean, that's just a significant upgrade. And this is just going to deepen the Sox already really good lineup, and it's going to help him defensively as we – Trevor Story is one of the premier defensive players in the league. Yeah, and you think about how well he performed in Colorado. Now – there's kind of really two sides to it. Number one, people obviously say cores and the, the, the environment there, pads, player stats, but you also look at it. Who was in that lineup with him? It was him and Arenado for a while, and then a bunch of guys who never developed into anything. So he had really no protection. So while you might look at it from one angle and say, well, his numbers were inflated at cores, will they transition to Fenway? You could also say now he's in a lineup with Rafi, with Xander, JD, Verdugo, tons of protection around him. So I really, Barrett, I think his numbers are going to transition well. And honestly, if he stays healthy, he could hit 30 homers this year and steal 20 bags. I think, yeah, if he's healthy, I think he's an easy 30 home run guy. Uh, and I agree with everything you said on the protection aspect of things. Uh, the course field inflated numbers, I think it's kind of fluky. Some guys... If you look deeper into some of the stuff that involves with the altitude, things like that, there's some scientific stats that say it, it could even be argued that it's harder to hit at Coors Field. But regardless, with the monster protecting him from flyouts to left and stuff like that, I think Trevor Story is going to have a phenomenal season with the bat. I'm interested to see where he hits in the order. I think he'd be great in the two hole, mm. but I've seen some things that like in the five range as well. So. It'll be interesting, but overall, I love the signing for the Red Sox. That's a huge get for the Sox, especially in what I think is baseball's toughest division with four playoff caliber teams uh, and then the Baltimore Orioles, of course. Shout out to that team with their $30 million payroll. But uh, the other the other three teams with the Red Sox in that division all could win 90 games. So a story is a huge get for Boston. But looking at some other signings, Barrett, that the Sox made recently, Derek Holland, uh, good get maybe for them? Uh, I think the Holland thing, he could just log some innings for the team mm -hmm. is my kind of idea. Because last season, of, uh, and by the midseason, we had 
Martin Perez and Garrett Richards in the bullpen. Right. And they kind of ate up some of those innings. And I think Holland could be a guy like that if he ends up making the roster. So I think that's kind of the purpose for Holland. And they also brought in uh, Matt Strom, who has the ability to eat up some innings as well in the pen, as well as Jake Diekman, who I thought was a really good signing for the value too, because across his career, he's been a steady reliever. Uh, last year, three and three with a three eight six ERA and eighty three punch outs. So Diekman, uh, Strom, add a couple more left handers to the pen uh, recently too. What's your reaction to those two guys joining the Red Sox? I really like the Deakman signing. I think he's a back-of-the-bullpen guy that we desperately needed, uh, specifically a lefty. Uh, Strom has a lot of good analytical numbers and stuff, so hopefully he can translate as well. But I'm really hoping all these lefty bullpen signings can push Darwins and Hernandez to finally have a good season. Red Sox fans have been waiting for Darwins to kind of break out. He has electric stuff, but he's, he's all over the place with the ball. He has a high wit. So hopefully these signings put some pressure on them and maybe we have a couple of really good lefties in the bullpen. Yeah, it could shape up to be one of the top bullpens in the AL for sure. Uh, so that sums up the Sox signing. Some of the other American League teams that have been quiet include the Orioles, uh, the Guardians. The White Sox didn't do a whole lot this offseason. They did lose Carlos Rodon uh, as he goes out to San Francisco on a two-year deal for decent money. But we're going back to Coors Field. We were talking about Trevor Story, uh, the big signing for the Colorado Rockies, shockingly, they bring in Chris Bryant on a seven-year deal uh, worth north of $180 million, Barrett. A big signing for Colorado as they shockingly spend money after trading Arenado and letting Story go. What, what are the Rockies doing, honestly? This, I think there's a 0% chance that Chris Bryant spends all seven years of that contract in Colorado. I think they kind of heard some noise from management and they essentially just went and overpaid for a really good player. Uh, I think he might even know that he's not going to be in Colorado for seven years, but I mean, just the organization as a whole, it's, it's pretty confusing. You trade, you pay Arenado, then you trade him, And then you don't pay story or John gray and you let him hit free agency and don't trade him. And then you sign Chris Bryant. <laughs> I don't really know what they're doing there. Well, they also extended Ryan McMahon for six years. Yeah. So you throw that in there. Yeah. He, and McMahon, I like him as a player. He's a solid guy. But it's just – it's confusing what exactly they're doing, especially with the fact that you – I know they tried to re-sign Story, but the relationship was so bad between Story and the organization that he didn't even consider there. Yeah. Uh, it's just confusing on what they're doing. Well, they didn't really find a direction yet. So, I mean, I expect them to finish probably last in that division again. So, but at least for Chris Bryant, he got a payday, which is nice. Um, yeah. Some other big signings in the league, Barrett, since the lockout has ended, uh, moving down the list of teams, obviously the Dodgers and Freddie Freeman probably, and well, I mean, not money-wise a top signing, but for a former MVP, a World Series champion, uh, one of the best players in baseball, Freeman goes to the Dodgers. And really, is anybody match up well with the Dodgers, any other team? Because their lineup seems deadly. No, not with that lineup, at least. I mean, you can argue pitching staffs and stuff, but their lineup is insane. I mean, one through nine, they're all guys who can hit 30 home runs or hit at least 280. So that's pretty hard to match up with. And with the DH being added, you're, you're going to see guys like Justin Turner, Freddie Freeman, Max Muncie, 
AJ Pollock, they're going to have time to get rest off, rest days, and they just hit. And essentially, I think that's going to be really helpful for a team like the Dodgers when it comes to the postseason. I think definitely the favorites right now for the World Series are the Dodgers, that big deal for them. Uh, another contract that was signed recently was one we talked about earlier, Jorge Soler to the Marlins. Um, three years, about $33 million, I believe, uh, an option after the first year. Barrett, you talked about him DHing. He's got some good pop, and, and that's a fine signing. It fills that need for the Marlins. Yeah, I actually thought he was going to get a larger deal because of the, the playoff run he had. But uh, the Marlins, I, I don't mind them going and getting a guy like Soler. They're trying to be competitive. They've made a couple moves this offseason. And for Soler, I think they haven't, he has an opt-out after one year. So you don't really – you're not locked into Miami if you don't like it there. And if he hits 40 home runs or something, he has a crazy season, then he probably will opt-out and he'll probably go get a bigger payday. I like the deal a lot for him, too. Like you mentioned, that opt-out after the first year is big because look what Kyle Schwarber just got for the Phillies. We'll get to him in a minute. But they're similar players in terms of not great defensively and big power hitters. Schwarber really didn't get off to a great start in his career, had a decent year a couple years ago, but then explodes this year for uh, 27 homers, I believe, or or even more than that. He might have hit closer to 30. I'll have to check. But he had a big year, right, Barrett? And then – gets the four-year deal from the Phillies. So I think Solaire kind of looks at that and says, well, if I explode, hit 40 home runs, I could play myself into a multi-year contract about $15 million a year. Yeah, and he goes down, he plays in warm Miami. Like, yeah. He's not going to complain about that. So I think it's a win-win for both sides. If the Marlins get good production out of him, you could see him moved at the deadline, just like he was last season. Right. Uh, it could just be a, a good thing for both teams, or both sides at least. So the Marlins – not spending a ton of money, but they do get a few pieces this offseason. And another team that I think is similar in terms of where they finished in the standings last year, the Minnesota Twins, they make – I mean, I didn't see this coming at all. I mean, I, Carlos Correa to the Twins, three years, $105 million after they trade Josh Donaldson and Isaiah Kinnerfalefa to the Yankees. Uh, what, is, what is this? Like, well, I don't understand – I mean, I understand him taking the deal, right? As an opt-out after this year, he makes $35 million. He likes hitting there because of the batter's eye. Uh, go mash 45 home runs and opt-out. But, like, I don't know. It's just a confusing one to me. I actually love it for both sides. Because in Minnesota, what do they have to lose? Yeah. Like, they're getting a premier player. They unloaded Donald's contract. So, they're basically paying close to the same amount as they would be paying for Josh Donaldson. And Carlos Correa is a premier defender and an amazing hitter. So I think worst-case scenario, you're the Twins, you're not very good, and you trade Carlos Correa at the deadline, and you get really good a really good return for him. Now, maybe Carlos Correa loves it there. He commits that he's going to stay all three seasons. Uh, I strongly doubt that will happen, but maybe that happens. It's just a win-win for Minnesota, at least. And then for Correa, he has – he kind of got screwed over with the, the whole lockout situation, I think. And I think he's just content collecting the $30 million they'll make this season. And then he'll probably just opt out as long as he doesn't have a bad season or as long as he's not injury, injured all year. I think we'll just see him opt out, and he'll probably find a new home. But who knows? Like I was saying earlier with – these guys who might get traded to smaller markets, 
maybe Correa loves it in Minnesota. We don't know. Like, I honestly think it's just a can't-lose situation for for the Twins. So I like it for them. And then Correa has the opportunity to opt out and go make more money. So, Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, for them, too, with Correa and Buxton healthy, Barrett, you probably have two top 15, top 20 players in the game. If yeah, they, they have they have other – if they had a good pitching staff, you could argue they're a playoff team, but they're pitching horrendous. Well, especially in that uh, division, too, with the Royals yeah. and the Guardians being absolute bottom feeders, and then the Tigers kind of an unknown. But, yeah, they if they add – I mean, will they get Sonny Gray? Ooh, big time. <laughs> and otherwise, they got Randy Bobnack with his 5 ERA. Um, but, yeah, no, so, they, they're just kind of in, in between. But, you know, they do have some star power at least. But they're one of those teams with this extra playoff spot. Let's say they're hanging around at the deadline. You could go see him going to get a starting pitcher or something. Yeah, because right now looking at their their rotation, uh, Sonny Gray, Dylan Bundy, he was a stud last year, the 6 ERA, uh, Chichi <laughs> Gonzalez, and uh, Sonny Gray, uh, Randy Dovnak's an option. I don't know any of these other guys. Never heard of any of them. Joe, oh, Joe Ryan could be good. Joe Ryan, yeah, Joe I Ryan's like decent. That could be a good uh, start for them. Uh, and then Lewis Thorpe, uh, who was 0-2 yeah. with a 4-7 in 6Ks last year. So so I wouldn't bank on them making the playoffs, but I think their lineup is good enough to be a, a playoff yeah. hitting team, but they're, they'll need to add some arms. But I just like it for Minnesota. I don't see it as any way you could lose by signing Carlos Correa. Yeah, so Correa goes to Minnesota, a big deal there uh, to a team who's looking to add some pieces. A team, on the other hand, Barrett, who's just completely tearing it down, even though they were a playoff team with a good rotation and a couple stars, the Oakland Athletics trade Chris Bassett to the Mets, Matt Olson to the Braves, Matt Chapman to the Blue Jays, and now are looking to move on from Sean Manaya and Frankie Montes. Uh, so the A's just completely bro- blowing it up this offseason. Yeah, it's kind of sad, honestly, because that team, like those guys you named, they could all be all-stars. So it's really it's really disappointing to see a team like the A's with such a low payroll just get rid of these top top guys because they can be competitive. They could have that team could have made some noise and they just didn't want to pay them and they couldn't pay them. So that's kind of how it went. I mean, I love the deals for like Olsen to replace Freddie Freeman. That's great for the Braves. But it's just, it's sad to see out of the A's. And they'll be moving Manea and Monta soon. So yeah, it's so just going to get worse. A couple things, too, with that. They did get a good return, at least, from Matt Olson, I thought. Uh, Christian yeah. Pache has a lot of potential. But to hit on that quick, I mean, is there a better fit to replace Freddie Freeman than Matt Olson? Defensively, probably in the same realm, I think. They're not too far apart. Offensively, a left-handed bat with some pop, too. Probably not as good of an average hitter. Uh, than than Freeman, but still, like I think naturally Olsen slides in there perfectly. Yeah, I think it's kind of a a seamless fit. Like it just yeah. it makes a lot of sense for the Braves to bring in a guy like that. And that Braves team, I think they can be just as dangerous this year. But that like I get Freddie Freeman, former MVP, but Matt Olson's pretty good and their bullpen got better too. So yeah, the Braves improving in a lot of areas. Kenley Jansen, a big signing, one year, uh close to 18 million dollars for him. I like the deal, number one, for him because he has a little bit of pressure taken off of him with L.A. And obviously the legacy he built there is such a dominant closer the last few years. I think there's so much pressure for him there. 
to keep that up. And if he's anything less than what he was, I think a lot of fans were getting on him for it. Now he goes to a really good Atlanta team, a little bit quieter media and attention-wise, and has a chance with a really good bullpen around him to put up career year. Yeah, I, I love the the fit for Jansen. Like you said, Dodgers fans are kind of getting on him last year when he when he was having his struggles. But Jansen's been a great closer for seems like a decade. Like, he's going to fit in well on that team. They also added Colin McHugh, who had a career year last year as a reliever. So they got a lot of guys in that bullpen that they can hand the ball over to when their starters are done. Right, McHugh, Matzik, Will Smith, Jansen – uh, amongst others, should be a good bullpen. Their rotation's all right. It's, you know, Morton and Ian Anderson, a really good one and two punch there. Uh, obviously, with Soroka out till August, that's going to be a little bit of a, a, um, a void they have to fill. But Tuki Toussaint and uh, Yaskar Yanoa, I think his name is, or I don't know how to say it correctly. Yep. Max Fried. Max Fried, I always forget about him. He was a stud, too. He was yeah. a stud. So they're going to be really good this year. And, uh, then they, I don't like the guy, but Ozuna's going to be back, too. So Yeah, that's something I forget about. I mean, you look we'll at Austin see. Riley, Dansby Swanson, Ozzy, and Olsen on the infield, and then you go with Ozuna at DH, uh, probably at DH, I'd say. When Acuna comes back, I mean, you're just – Duval, Eddie Rosario. They're, Duval and Rosario. They're, deep. they're a deep team. Yeah, if they can stay healthy, which has obviously been a problem for Acuna, um, Ozuna had an arm injury, too. Um, Dansby's been relatively healthy and durable, but they need to make sure Ozzy, Acuna, um, Ozuna, and Rosario are healthy, I think. But they're going to be the team to beat probably in that division still. Yeah, and I agree. And I don't know, the Phillies, they made some signings. They could, they could compete. Yeah, let's jump into the Phillies, my team. I've been uh, missing them in the playoffs the last 10 years, unfortunately. But hopefully this is the year for them. They make a splash. They sign Nick Castellanos to a five-year deal worth $100 million, and Kyle Schwarber, four years, $78 million. Uh, these two guys hit absolute tanks. Uh, this is a team, Barrett, with their lineup. It has four guys in it that I think could hit 35 home runs if they stay healthy. But defensively, a uh, lot to be desired. Seems like there's going to be a lot of seven to six games this year in Philadelphia. And uh, hopefully this is enough to get them more towards that extra playoff spot because I think it's definitely attainable. Yeah, I think adding Schwarber and Castellanos makes that lineup really exciting. And to jump on that point, uh, you said some seven to six games we could be seeing, but they've added some bullpen guys too, Austin. I mean, is this bullpen going to be improved? I don't know. It's like really, I think I saw some stats on it and I'm writing a piece about it for uh, SB Nation's The Good Fight website. Um, they're like really boomer bust. If you look at a lot of the fan graphs on it, they're – a lot of the guys have really good K to walk ratios last year, but like you look at a jury's familia who had a 15% walk rate uh, in 2020 and 2019, it was about 15%. Last year it came down to 10%, but is familia going to maintain that? Or is he going to go back to how he was two years ago? Is Brad hand going to give you the blue Jays, Brad hand who was designated for assignment after seven innings, or are you going to get, the New York Mets Brad Hand, who had a 2-7 ERA in 13 innings. There's a lot of X factors. And, I mean, Sir Anthony Dominguez is back in the majors finally for the first time, really, since 2019. So this is just such a boomer bust bullpen. I, I don't know how to feel about it. Corey Knable's another one who's a question mark. So they just went out and got a bunch of guys 
who have done it at one point, but I don't know if they're going to do it this year. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I think Knable will be solid, but Brad Hand, I have no clue. I, but Such a miss. I think that lineup, if they're scoring eight runs a game, which they could, they definitely could, uh, then you might not even have to worry about it. You guys' rotation's pretty solid, too, so I yeah, still expect those guys, those guys should at least go five, six innings every game, so... I think the Phillies are in a good spot to compete. I don't know if they'll win the division, but I think they're definitely in the conversation for one of those wild card spots. Yeah, and they asked Girardi about the defense today during the spring training game against the Blue Jays, and he said, you know, well, you're not going to have range at every position, but you have to make the plays that come to you. So that could be their defensive strategy. You're also – they're going to probably keep a couple guys on the bench like Adam Hazley, Matt Veerling to be defensive replacements for Schwarber or Nick Castellanos late in the game. Um, But when you have – defensive lineup that also includes Reese Hoskins, Alec Bohm, and Didi Gregorius. You have a lot of holes defensively. Uh, couple that with Brad Hand and his uh, 30% fly ball rate or whatever it is. You're going to have some troubles, but for now, I'm at least happy they got some big bats to score some runs to contend with the Braves and uh, the Mets as well. So it should be interesting to see how that plays out. A uh, couple more signings and trades. One was Luke Voigt to the Padres. How do you think he fits in in San Diego? I think he fits in well there, considering they're trying to move off of Hosmer. He'll probably DH a lot if they don't move off of Hosmer, but I think he just need a new home. He felt, to me, as a Red Sox fan who saw him play against us, it felt like the Yankees kind of just disregarded him. I thought he had a, a really good season a couple of years ago with the Yankees. And it seemed like they just kind of gave up on him because he had some injuries. And I think he felt disrespected, and he should have felt disrespected. And I think he's going to want to prove to some people, especially in the Yankees camp, that he can still hit 30 home runs and bat 260 or something like that. And I actually think it's a good fit for him. Uh, we'll see with the Padres. Their team kind of feels uh, incomplete in a way. I don't know. With Tatis injured and – they're trying to move off two of their starters. The Padres are kind of a weird situation for me. Yeah, they might be the team that this lockout put in a bad spot the most over other teams because they really needed that time to evaluate, try to move Myers, try to move Hosmer. They didn't have the chance to. So now they have an incomplete outfield, an injured Tatis, but some stars. So it's really like their rotation, I think, is what decides it. Is Blake Snell and you Darvish going to be – 2021 versions of themselves or are they going to regain their success is Clevenger going to come back off that Tommy John and be good just so many question marks for the Padres but the way I don't know what you think about this I think they could win 98 games just as easily as they could win 70 and be a bad team I completely agree I think it's their range their floor is really low and their ceiling is really high yeah so it's going to be interesting to see I mean they're going to have to just kind of hang around at the 500 spot until they get Tatis back or they're going to not, they won't be able to make the postseason. I mean, they're, what are they going to be three months without him? So yeah, that's that really be- tough. That's really tough to, to replace a guy like that. So we'll see what they do. Hopefully they can stay afloat and be in the conversation. You can have some fun battles between them and the giants and the Dodgers at the end of the season, but we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, we mentioned earlier the Giants getting Carlos Rodon on a two-year deal. So one of the other pieces to add to that rotation uh, that should be nice. A nice pairing with Logan Webb is a one and a two. Um, but the next team, Barrett, to jump to quickly, the Seattle Mariners might be – I mean, a lot of people are now picking them 
to win the AL West after they added Robbie Ray earlier in the offseason. Then after the lockout, they go and get Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez out of nowhere. I'm jumping all over the Mariners hype train. Yeah, and I, I like the Mariners hype train too. And just wait till they call up Julio Rodriguez. That guy is going to be an absolute stud. So I, I'm hoping we see him by midseason. But this team, I think they're a lot of fun. Uh, I think there's a chance they disappoint. I don't think they will. Um, they kind of remind me in a way of uh, of the Padres. Like, it really depends on how a lot of these guys play. Right. Are we going to get the the first half Jesse Winker of last season? Or are we going to get the second half? I mean, we don't know. Same thing with Adam Frazier. They picked him up this offseason. He had a great first half and struggled in the second half. So hopefully all those guys can put together a full season. It'd be, it'd be great to see Seattle baseball back in the postseason. That would be very fun to watch. And they're yet another team that benefits from the DH too, because now Kyle Lewis gets some games off and gets the DH a little bit. Mitch Hanniger too. Um, guys who got injured, honestly, towards the end of last year and during the season, partially because they're not, you know, fit to be out in the outfield for 160 games. So now Kalenic can get most of his time in the outfield, but they're going to rotate that DH spot. And I think it helps them out big time as well. Yeah, and I agree with that. It's going to be interesting to see, like, what their lineup looks like, who's batting at the top of the order and who's been at the bottom and who's playing where defensively. Uh, is Suarez probably going to replace Seager at third base and J.P. Crawford stays at short, I would assume. But it'll be interesting. I think they're a really fun team, and they got the AL Cy Young last year and Robbie Ray, so they have a, a big energy pitcher on their team too. So I think it's going to be a really fun team to watch. One of the favorites in the AL, no doubt. And Barrett, on the next episode of the Long Relief Podcast, we'll probably be diving in to some predictions for the year, going by through the division, seeing who we think is going to win. So that should be a fun one to look out for. But I think that wraps up most of the signings, Barrett. Did we miss anything here on free agent signings since the lockout ended? Um, I don't think so. Nothing too big. See a Suzuki maybe? You want to mention him real quick? Suzuki, yes. So Suzuki goes to the Cubs uh, Five years coming over from Japan. I mean, obviously, a lot of times when these Japanese players come over, uh, they could be highly successful, uh, like Shohei Otani. Uh, even Dice came out Suzaka for the first year. Or they could have a really poor year and just kind of not succeed. Um, you know, Kenta Maeda and Kikuchi, they weren't great, but they're serviceable. But what do, you, what do we think about Suzuki? Is he somebody who's going to be closer to an Otani? Or is he going to be somebody who's closer to a – a Fukudome when he was with the Cubs about 10 years ago. Uh, I think it's going to be really tough to be an Otani, but I think he could be a good player for the team. I don't really like and or understand why he chose Chicago because I don't think he has a lot of protection in that lineup to kind of develop at, to MLB pitching. So that's the only part that kind of concerns me about it. But I think he's going to be a serviceable player. Serviceable player. You could see him bat 275 and hit 20, 25 home runs. I think he'll be a, a good get, and hopefully they can build a team with him in it and for the near future. Yeah, with Stroman there as well, they at least spent some money to try to slowly get that team back into contention. Um, but that pretty much wraps all the signings up. A couple of guys, Barrett, still left on the market. Michael Conforto, probably the biggest name. I haven't heard much at all in Conforto after a bad year, but you got to assume that, relatively soon we'll see him get a deal maybe it's a one-year deal somewhere though yeah hopefully him tommy fam and the guys like that they they find a home relatively soon here and i wouldn't mind seeing one of them in boston we're already over the payroll so (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go over the tax, you got to go over the tax all the way. It's kind of what the Phillies did with Nick and what the Sox did with Story. So we'll see what teams continue to make moves throughout the rest of the offseason. But that we're pretty much at our conclusion for Episode 8 as we welcome you back uh, from the lockout. Any final thoughts before we wrap things up this week? Nope, just enjoy those spring training games and get ready for our episode next week where we're looking at our division previews. Well, baseball is back, and we want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of the Long Relief Podcast with Austin Dakota and Barrett Hodgson. We will see you next week for our division-by-division picks and previews. Stay tuned here on the Long Relief Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe.